You know you need protein to fuel results, but it's not easy when you're drinking the same bland chalky shake every day. Stop punishing yourself and get to GNC for the best protein in the game, including all the hottest brands and crave-worthy flavors that'll keep you coming back for more. We're talking protein that legit tastes like cookies, your favorite cereals, indulgent desserts, and more. So bust out of your protein rut and actually look forward to those shakes with unbeatable protein at unbeatable prices. Fuel your fitness with protein at GNC. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Welcome back to another Surgical Palliative Care edition of Behind the Knife. My name is Red Hoffman, and I am an acute care surgeon at Mission Hospital in Asheville, North Carolina and one of about 90 surgeons currently board certified in hospice and palliative medicine. I am the founder and host of the Surgical Palliative Care Podcast and the co-founder of the recently launched Surgical Palliative Care Society. I'd like to introduce you to my co-hosts for this episode, Dr. Zara Cooper and Dr. Amanda Stasny. Zara, can you introduce yourself? Sure. Red, thank you so much for having me. My name is Zara Cooper. I'm a trauma and acute care surgeon at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. And I am also one of about 90 surgeons currently board certified in hospice and palliative medicine. Red, I was number 63. I don't know which which number you were. (laughs) I also am the Kessler Director of the Center for Surgery and Public Health, also at Brigham and Women's Hospital. And I'm a health services researcher Uh, really setting the intersection of surgery, geriatrics, and palliative care. And we're so excited to have Zara with us. She really is a leader in the field of surgical palliative care research, and I'm excited for her to share some of her experience with us tonight. And Amanda, Amanda is one of my awesome PGY2 residents at the Mayhack General Surgery Program in Asheville, North Carolina. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Dr. Hoffman. Hi, Dr. Cooper. Thanks for joining us this time. Thanks again for being with us today, Amanda. Hi, Amanda. You have to call me Zara while we're, while we're on the podcast. <laughs> yes, we're on a first name basis on behind the knife. So we're all in this together. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. So today will be our first palliative care journal club. Before we get started, Zara, as one of the early leaders in the field of surgical palliative care, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how the research in this field actually got started. Yeah, thanks, Red. I think it's a it's an important question, and it's kind of crazy to think that you know we're 15, 20 years out from the first studies about palliative care and surgery. As I, I think most of the listeners understand, palliative care is an interdisciplinary medical field uh, that is really focused on on patient quality of life, patient experience and patient and family experience of patients who are living with serious illness. And serious illness is defined as anything that is life-limiting, burdensome to patient and families, and and negatively impacts quality of life. And so you can imagine that there are a lot of surgical conditions that would certainly fall into that category. The pioneers in palliative care uh, include Balfour Mountain, who was actually the first person to coin the phrase palliative care, and he was a urologist at McGill uh, in Montreal. Jeff Dunn, who was the leader of the Committee for Surgical Palliative Care of the American College of Surgeons for many years, and then Ann Mosenthal, who is a trauma and acute care surgeon 
previously at Rutgers, where she did a lot of uh, the seminal work that we're going to discuss today and succeeded Jeff as the chair for the Committee on Surgical Palliative Care at the American College of Surgeons. The initial research on palliative care and surgery was done by Dr. Mosenthal as part of her PDIA project. And PDIA was the Project for Death in America, which was funded by the Soros Foundation and really funded some of you know the most nominal uh, and famous people in in palliative care today. So you know that was a cohort that included Diane Meyer, Sean Morrison, Randy Curtis, Judy Nelson, uh, and many of these names may not be familiar to surgeons, but certainly to surgical intensivists, some of them should be. And a lot of the initial work was really done around end of life care in the intensive care unit and looking at intensity of treatment. And Anne translated some of that work into the surgical and trauma ICU. Thanks so much for that, Zara. So as you mentioned, Dr. Ann Mosenthal, who is really a mentor to many of us in the field of surgical palliative care, was one of the earliest surgeons to begin studying the role of palliative care in the trauma intensive care unit. Amanda, do you want to tell us a little bit about the first article we'll be talking about? Sure. So this was one of Dr. Mosenthal's first articles. It was entitled Changing the Culture Around End-of-Life Care in the Trauma Intensive Care Unit. This was published in 2008 in the Journal of Trauma. It was a prospective observational pre-post study on trauma patients admitted to the ICU, both before and after kind of a structured palliative care intervention was put into place as a standard of care in the ICU. This study was inspired by the statistics that 10 to 20% of trauma patients admitted to the trauma ICU will die from their injuries. And so Dr. Mosenthal and her team hypothesized that early structured communication would improve end-of-life care practice in this setting. Yeah, and I want to point out that palliative care is really a team sport, and Dr. Mosenthal worked very closely with her nurse, who also has a PhD, Dr. Pat Murphy, during all of these studies. And so this intervention included two parts. Part one occurred at admission to the ICU, and it included family bereavement support, assessment of prognosis, which included both mortality and functional status, eliciting patient preference, and focusing on pain and symptom management. And then part two occurred within 72 hours, and this included an interdisciplinary family meeting with both the physician and the nurse present, communication of likely outcomes, a discussion about goals of care, and an assessment of family understanding. And for those of you who have read the American College of Surgeons TQIP Palliative Care Best Practice Guidelines that you can find for free on the internet, these interventions are actually included in those guidelines. So Amanda, tell us a little bit about the results of this study. So between the baseline year and the intervention period, ICU mortality rates were essentially the same or 15% versus 14%. Um, Among the patients who died, the rate of DNR orders were also the same between the baseline group and the group that had had the intervention. Interestingly enough, the percentage of patients who had withdrawal of life-sustaining treatment was higher in the baseline group, and that was by 13%. So the timing of both DNR orders and withdrawal of life-sustaining treatments were actually significantly earlier in the intervention group 
which was also associated with shorter length of ICU stay and hospital stay for patients who died during the intervention year. Yeah, so given these results, the researchers concluded that early communication about likely prognosis and about patient preferences, along with psychosocial support and family meetings, can lead to more timely end-of-life discussions and therefore decreased ICU days for dying patients. And there are a few things I really love about this study. One, the interventions focus not only on the patient, but on the family, which really supports the palliative care principle that the unit of care is both the patient and the family. And while no evaluation of early family bereavement support was done, the authors speculate that its positive effect on end-of-life decision-making may be inferred from the low rate of conflict in family meetings and from the earlier timing of both DNR orders and of withdrawal of life-sustaining treatment. And another thing I really appreciate about this study is that it illustrates the effectiveness of surgeons performing primary palliative care in the ICU, which is something we touched on a little bit in our first episode. I think that in the approximately 15 years since this study was completed, the concept of primary palliative care among surgeons has continued to gain traction. And I'm thinking of an article that was published this month in the Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery by the team at OHSU that discussed how they have demonstrated significant improvement in adherence to the TQIP palliative care guidelines by developing an effective primary palliative care approach. And as surgical patients continue to get older, sicker, and more medically complex, the need for palliative care will continue to rise. I think the more surgeons who become comfortable with some primary palliative care skills, the better we will be able to serve our patients. So I'm curious, Zara, I think you were just finishing up your surgical critical care training at Harborview when this paper came out. And I'm wondering if you remember it and how it changed practice in the trauma ICU. Yeah, thanks, Red. I certainly remember it because it really created a field. And, you know, I've discussed on this podcast actually before how my kind of entree into to palliative care came to be really around my critical care training and that I was looking for additional skills to help me communicate with patients and families and to alleviate suffering, particularly for patients near the end of life, but certainly not limited to that. And, you know, the early work that Anne and Jeff and others did really illustrating and describing how palliative care was applicable to surgery and how seriously ill patients, you know, needed palliative care no matter where they were receiving treatment, whether it was on a surgical service, an oncology service or whatever, um, really informed the way that I thought about, you know, my training and, and my role. And what was so exciting about this study was it was published in the Journal of Trauma. It was really the first study to demonstrate a, a clear role for palliative care in surgery uh, that wasn't narrative. It w- was actually an intervention study primary data collection uh, that was actually quite meaningful. And so, you know, I think I remember discussing this in Journal Club. It gave us pause to think about how we should integrate some of these principles into our practice. And I think it really opened the door for palliative care in the surgical and trauma ICU. Thanks for sharing, Zara. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, 
With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Sense of why everyone who comes out of Harborview is so skilled at primary palliative care. <laughs> I do, actually. Well, I do. I mean, there, there are a couple of reasons. One... Certainly when, when I was there, um, it was really fascinating because, you know, most of the palliative care physicians at that point who were practicing palliative care were actually emergency medicine physicians. And so we worked with them in the trauma bay and the trauma setting, but also, you know, in the ICU when they were practicing palliative care. And they were very skilled and facile with dealing with acute illness, which is actually unusual uh, in palliative care. And, and so I think that's definitely part of it. I think the other thing is that they, for such a long time, have had such a well-established relationship between palliative care and the ICU. I mean, Randy Curtis, who's there and is the director of the Cambia Center in Excellence for Palliative Care there, I mean, is really kind of the grandfather of palliative care in critical care. And so very baked into the water there. Ron Mayer, who is still there, he's the vice chair of surgery at the University of Washington and is the chair of surgery at Harborview, is a huge supporter of palliative care and and was uh, always a very, very skilled communicator with patients and families. Uh, around decision making and end of life care, and so it, it really is baked in, in the in the water there, uh, and I and I think that it's a testament to a system where the the folks who are there really recognize the role for palliative care and managing pe- patients and families who who are suffering with acute illness. And what I love about people who've trained there is. Obviously, a good number have gone on to pursue palliative care fellowships, but there's also so many, including two of my current partners who are just so skilled at primary palliative care. And again, it brings back something that we talked about on the first surgical palliative care episode, which is that you do not need fellowship training to do primary palliative care, that any surgeon should really be able to integrate some of these skills into their practice to help their patients and their families. And yeah, I no, I, I couldn't agree more, Red. And I'll tell you one analogy that, that I've come up with that I think helps some people understand when to call palliative care, because, you know, that it's a question that I've been asked by many of my colleagues. How do I know when I need specialty palliative care? And as an intensivist uh, and as a surgeon, I feel very comfortable managing atrial fibrillation. And if a patient needs beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, amiodarone, I feel very comfortable prescribing those and I understand the side effects and and all that. But if we get into kind of more advanced therapeutics, uh, like ablation or other medical, I call cardiology. And it's really the same kind of principle. Like There's stuff about cardiology and managing kind of basic arrhythmias that as a physician, I should know. As a surgeon, I need to know. And certainly there's time to call on the specialist. So I, I couldn't agree with you more. There's just such an important role for surgeons to understand primary palliative care. And we know that, you know, there are major workforce issues. There will never be enough palliative care clinicians to uh, meet the needs of all of the seriously ill patients 
that are coming through the healthcare system, and that includes surgery. I think I'd be hard pressed to think of a service I've been on where we couldn't have utilized palliative care, or you know, you don't see one of your attendings, at least you know, in ours that are pretty comfortable with performing primary palliative care, doing it. So I think this, these journal articles and this podcast has just kind of opened my eyes to really take a look and see how, regardless of what specialty you choose, you know, whether it's critical care, vascular surgery, hepatobiliary, whatever, that there will be opportunities if you are comfortable and take advantage of them. So we're going to move now to an article that was published in Critical Care Medicine in January 2013 that was entitled, Surgeons Expect Patients to Buy Into Postoperative Life Support Preoperatively, Results of a National Survey. So Zara, can you explain a little bit more about the concept of surgical buy-in, which is discussed in this article? Yeah, this is such an important, such an important concept. And, and I really give so much credit to Gretchen Shorzy and, and Karen Brazel for really thinking, conceptualizing this, because it really is such an elegant way to help describe the uh, surgeon patient relationship and, and also to encapsulate a lot of the, the conflict, but also the trauma that can happen. And, and basically, the concept of surgical buy-in is that when patient agrees to an operation, the surgeon then takes that agreement as also an implicit agreement to undergo any treatment that is related to achieving a good outcome from that operation. And so because a patient says that they will have surgery, they consent to surgery, in the surgeon's mind, that also means that they consent to postoperative mechanical ventilation, postoperative feeding tube, postoperative um, hemodialysis, discharge to a non-home location, whatever it might be that is required to kind of get that patient through. And, and part of the, the challenge here is that really uh, does not account for patient autonomy. The fact that uh, decisions can be dynamic and that while a patient may agree to you know, an operation in one moment, in the next moment, it does not mean that they agree to kind of everything else that, that comes down the line. And, and also that, that this agreement was, in the surgeon's mind, implicit. It was not explicitly stated. And so also leads to conflict where patients and, and their families, uh, in, in the cases where patients can't speak for themselves and families have to uh, be in the role of, of surrogate decision makers, really don't understand what they've agreed to, that can lead to a lot of frustration on, on the part of the surgeon who will reject uh, the patient and family's desires to, to stop or forego certainly life-sustaining treatment. I hope that was clear. Yeah. Well, Zara, I still remember the first time I heard about the concept of surgical buy-in, and it was at some session during the ACS Clinical Congress, maybe in 2014 or 2015, and you got up to the microphone and made a comment about just because you buy the horse doesn't mean you need to buy the whole farm. And that just intuitively made sense to me. And I remember it so many years later. But what's very interesting is that this saying does not resonate with every surgeon, um, and nor does it resonate with every surgical subspecialty. 
And I certainly, I think, really began to appreciate how that does not resonate with certain subspecialties when I was doing my critical care fellowship and taking care of transplant patients and cardiothoracic patients and and really seeing some of that implicit buy-in. Yeah. So Amanda, tell us a little bit about this study. So this was authored by both Dr. Schwarzy and Dr. Brazel, um, and it surveyed over a thousand different cardiothoracic surgeons, vascular surgeons, and neurosurgeons to determine whether they negotiate with their patients preoperatively about the use of life-supporting and sustaining treatments in the postoperative period as a condition for performing surgery. Yeah. And in the introduction to this article, the authors discussed their previous work, which initially set out to examine surgeons' reluctance to withdraw postoperative life-sustaining treatments. So what I found interesting and what I remember reading from their previous study was that surgeons in the study said that an extensive conversation occurred before surgery in which a clear understanding is reached between the surgeon and the patient about the potential for both significant complications as well as the use of burdensome treatments postoperatively. And for me, right away, this brings up a problem that I think exists, which is surgeons' interpretations of the clarity of their communication versus patients' interpretations of what the surgeons are actually saying. So tell us a little more about the survey, Amanda. So this survey was designed to help kind of answer the question, why do surgeons have such a hard time withdrawing life support on their post-op patients? These authors designed a hypothesis generating a qualitative study that identified a pre-op process of negotiating an actual contract between surgeons of patients about the use of, and equally as importantly, limitation of life support in the post-operative period. So these surgeons were asked to imagine that one of your patients requires non-emergent surgery and is at moderate risk for long-term vent support or dialysis. If this patient had a specific request to limit life-sustaining therapy in the post-op period, how often would you do one of these separate things? Whether that was, would you decline to operate on this person? Would you negotiate a time period after which this life-sustaining treatment could be withdrawn? Or would you create an actual informal contract? And they were asked to answer, for example, never or rarely, sometimes or always. And I'm really curious about the idea of this informal contract. So I wonder what that means to the surgeon versus what that means to the patient and how exactly is that done? And I wonder whether patients understand that the surgeons have certain expectations regarding postoperative behavior and decisions, regardless of whether this contract is considered informal or not. And like I was saying, I remember several times as a critical care fellow feeling the strain of that quote unquote informal contract. You know, I'd be in these situations where the patient was doing very poorly and was not responding to any of our critical care interventions, yet the primary surgical team would not even want to engage in a discussion around limitations of care even with the team, much less the family, even though it seemed like the family, the nurse, and the whole ICU team were all thinking about it and wanting to talk about it. And I think it's difficult for us as the critical care team or the nurse 
to know what was discussed in that preoperative clinic. And I also acknowledge that I may have a very different threshold for pain and suffering, as well as a less nuanced understanding of the postoperative course for some of these patients. So Zara, can you talk a little bit about the results of this study? Yeah, Red, what you just said has so many things to unpack there. Uh, I hope I can I can get to all of it. So I think you're you're right about this informal contract. It varied, and so it's hard to know kind of when you're on the other side of this, or or when you're a, another clinician taking care of the patient, what that contract really included. I, I do want to be a little forgiving of surgeons as far as what we talk about regarding expectations regarding postoperative behavior and that sort of thing, because I think one of the challenges, and, and it is on us, I, I, I will certainly say that it's on us to figure this out, is that we are so familiar with the cadence of the operating room, the ICU, what it looks like, what it smells like, what it sounds like, that we often forget when we're discussing with somebody, well, you're going to be in the intensive care unit and you'll be on a, on a ventilator in a medically induced coma for 48 hours. That sounds very different. And they really may not have any idea of what, what we're talking about. So I think, you know, one of the things that, that we need to do as surgeons is to think about how to really be more descriptive in our language to helping patients and families really understand what the experience will be like. I think another challenge is that because surgeons are not comfortable with palliative care and allevi alleviating suffering and conceptually with psychosocial distress, that oftentimes it seems like a very binary approach or decision to surgeons to think about either life-sustaining treatment, including surgery, or nothing. Mm. Uh, and without that nuanced understanding that there can be gray areas and that we can actually talk about the things that worry us without actually making it happen, and, and that dealing with that emotion is actually a way to find a common ground, um, that's news to a lot of surgeons. And so I think it is really a challenge because uh, so many of us are, are poorly trained in primary palliative care. Um, and then I, I would also say that, you know, when when I think about, you know, and, and I'll say I noticed it with my own mother when she got a hip replacement. I mean, you know, when I looked at her in the hospital bed in her hospital, Johnny, she looked terrible. You know, right. I was like, this is not the person that I know. Yeah. And so imagine that if people were meeting her for the first time, they would just imagine that she was this frail little old lady who probably wasn't making a whole lot of sense. But that's not at all the person that I know. So I, I think that we also have to have to consider that when the family has a different understanding of who the person is and that the patient, I'm sorry, that the surgeon has met that patient in an elective setting which oftentimes, you know, the patient is their most dressed up, you know, they're trying to put on a good, a good front, kind of like a first date when they meet the surgeon, right. um, it, it creates a lot of different perceptions of what what's going on. So I think we have to, in our palliative care hat, kind of approach the whole thing with curiosity, and, and think about, you know, the different perspectives that everybody's coming coming to this with. I hope that kind of addressed what you're getting. I at. love that you brought up that word curiosity. Fabian used that when we had our last episode, and I think it's just such an important word. And it reminds me too, I come from this critical care background where I am seeing the patient at their very worst. And I do agree that the operating surgeon in an elective procedure probably saw the patient in a very different light. And yeah. to remember that we're 
we're all trying to do our best, right? Yeah, like yeah, this was, exactly. even if this was an informal contract, there was no maliciousness behind exactly, it. it was, exactly. It was and I, and trying think, to do the yes. very best and to advocate for the life of that patient. And, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think one of, one of the challenges, you know, we've seen it time and time again, you know, when we are the intensivist or, or just as our colleagues that, when we don't e- approach each other with curiosity for a whole host of reasons, whether it be the fast paced environment of the ICU or burnout or whatever it might be, you know, when the clinical team doesn't do that and we don't give each other the benefit of the doubt, it can really put the surgeon on the back of their heels. You know, they can feel like they have to defend their decision and defend what they're doing. And people don't always behave their best when they feel like their back is up against a yes. wall. And we have to, you know, be mindful of, of how we approach our colleagues who certainly if a patient has had a complication, I mean, you know, there's a lot of suffering as a surgeon that goes into that. Yeah. It's like they need our palliative care exactly. brain, our palliative <laughs> care exactly skills right. as well. Right. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yes. So Amanda, can you talk a little bit about what the authors recommend in place of negotiating about certain treatments and preferences? Yeah, so these authors recommended that instead of negotiating about specific treatments or preferences in this informal contract, the surgeon should initiate a pre-op conversation about more of like a goals and fear-centered conversation. So, for example, if you're a cardiothoracic surgeon and your patient is undergoing a cabbage, that patient and surgeon might have a goal of the surgery being that the patient has less chest pain and shortness of breath afterwards. And then a fear of that procedure may be a loss of independence for that patient. So specifically when discussing things like CPR, the surgeon can use these goals and fears to help kind of lend context to this discussion as to whether the patient would want this postoperatively or not, and to help them make the most informed decision that they can. I think it's important to note that it can be tailored specifically for whatever operation you're talking about. Like for example, a patient undergoing a cabbage it's important to know that the success of CPR in the immediate post-op period is going to be much, much higher than the success of CPR in a critically ill medical patient or someone found, you know, at home. That being said, if the surgeon knows that remaining independent is one of the most important things to this patient, then they may choose to either suggest or talk about limiting the time that CPR is performed if it doesn't look like it's going to be successful. And then another important point that the paper talked about was the importance of including the surrogate decision maker in these discussions and thoroughly documenting these talks as well, um, which I think can really help if these situations do come up post-op and there's kind of already a plan, you know, written out. Um, Any other thoughts, Zara? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a couple couple of issues there. I think one is the documentation is critically important as a strategy for communicating to other members of the clinical team what was said. And I think that our our reading of the electric, electronic medical record leaves a lot to be desired. And so, you know, if there are really important ideas to get across to the clinicians who are helping you take care of that patient as a surgeon, it's incumbent upon you to make sure that you communicate that broadly. Um, and, and then I also think that it is really important to think about preparing surrogates for their role. And, you know, surgeons in general do not have the bandwidth to do this. And I'm not entirely sure what the correct process is for doing this. But, you know, we have so much data that suggests that even when 
patients and surrogates say that they have talked about the patient's desires for for life-sustaining treatment, there's discordance 50% of the time. So it's basically a chip shot. Uh, And so surrogates really do need to be coached in what their role is uh, and how they can really uh, be ethical advocates for, for the patients. Thank you, Zara. So that wraps up the first Surgical Palliative Care Journal Club. Thanks so much for listening. And thank you again to Behind the Knife for recognizing the importance of integrating palliative medicine into the surgical curriculum. If you have any questions, please always feel free to reach out to any of us. We're all on Twitter. And we will see you again in March. Thanks, everyone. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.